Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BE106, discussing books and ideas from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 216, April the 6th, 1990. Otto Scott and I are going to discuss books and ideas connected with books and I'm going to start with one which uh, I think is a good one to begin with in April. It is Ron Luciano, the former Major League umpire, and David Fisher, Remembrance of Swing's Past. There's a lot of good humor in this book. It's in some portions hilarious as he recounts some of the episodes uh, connected with baseball and baseball players going back to Dizzy Dean and coming up to the present. For example, this one. And I quote, When not fighting, Clint was well liked by his roommates and opponents who delighted in playing practical jokes on him. Catcher Les Moss often repaired other players' gloves, and one day he was restringing uh, Scrap's catcher's mitt. Early Wynn saw Moss at work and suggested that they sew a slice of Limburger cheese into the pocket. I couldn't do that to an old roomie of mine, Moss said. Here, give it to me. Moss completed the job, leaving air vents so the odor would come out, then returned it to Courtney. When Courtney came out to catch, umpire Johnny Stevens <laughs> crouched over him for the first pitch. Stevens immediately jumped up <laughs> and called time. He was gasping for breath when remembers. His eyes were watering and he couldn't see. He looked into the dugout and saw me sprawled over the bat rack, laughing hysterically. When he yelled, you get out of here and stay in the clubhouse. If the manager needs you, he can get you. Meanwhile, Courtney just kept staring at his glove. John asked, what have I done? He was still coughing and choking, but he said, I'm not sure what you've done. But we've got nine innings to go, and I don't want you doing it anymore. I don't know if Courtney ever knew uh, that something was wrong. Well... There are a lot of stories like that and better. But there's one thing in it that I thought, on a serious level, was quite telling. Ron Luciano discusses the argument, was baseball better in the old days, or is it better now? He does not come to a conclusion. He gives you the arguments pro and con. But he does make an interesting point or two that favors the argument that it was better in the old days. And I think it's important for us, for this, well, I'll come to the reason later. His argument is this. We now have far more major league teams than we did in the old days when there were only eight teams. Eight teams in each league. So we have not only more players per team, per team, but more players 
per league. So he said, you're not going to have as much quality when you have a large number of players as compared to, say, what it was in the 30s and the 50s. On top of that, what has happened since World War II is that the temper of the people has changed quite a bit. In those days, there were minor leagues galore from coast to coast each with a large following, so that a young player had the extensive experience of a long uh, time training in the minors. So by the time he reached the major leagues, he was uh, three, four, five years in the minors and seasoned, an experienced player. Now he goes up to the majors as a raw rookie. So apprenticeship has largely gone out of baseball. Now, this reminded me of something else in another book that I was reading about the same time. It was, in fact, a book by uh, uh, Lamour, the Western writer, and in it he spoke of his apprenticeship before the war in uh, pulp magazines, writing for them. And it was a great training school because in those days there were more readers than there are now per thousand people. I know that in those days... Uh, not only young men, but older men, farmers, cowhands in isolated ranches, read heavily in the pulp magazines. And a great many exceptionally good writers got their start there. The editors were very capable. They were demanding. So a writer was schooled before he... Uh, broke out into the big leagues, which would be Liberty, the Saturday Evening Post, and Colliers, and the world of novels. None of that now exists. The pulps are gone. The old schooling that writers received is gone. And writing has declined. So, I think uh, the evidence that Luciano uh, collects does indicate to me, even though as an umpire he remains neutral, the evidence does indicate to me that the lack of apprenticeship has hurt us in baseball and I would say in other spheres as well. Any reaction to that, Otto? Well, of course, you're giving the story of my life. I used to write for the Popes, and uh, I went through all that. But there are a great many more publications today than there were then. And I would say that there's plenty of opportunities for uh, a beginning writer to break into print. There are city tabloids that are, they don't have big names, but 
there are a great many of them. Uh, some of the best writing in San Diego when I lived there uh, up until seven years ago was in a San Diego handout tabloid. There's lots of ads for beauty parlors and athletic salons and things like that. And I remember that the uh, Seville, I think, was the fellow's name who covered the theater and music. And he far outdid people in much bigger publications. He was terribly good. One of our, uh, but I do agree on the apprenticeship thing. Uh, there are no apprentices anymore. They, at first, you have to go to college. And if you recall the issue before last of the American Scholar, the Phi Beta Kappa publication had a long article on the kind of writers that are coming out of school in which we have academic writer after academic writer who is writing along the lines of his teaching in school and yes. not along the lines of his observations. Because what can you observe in school except the school? And uh, writers used to roam the landscape to learn. Uh, some He mentioned this, and I had forgotten it that a generation or more ago you'd see on the copy, the jacket copy about the author, that he had been a lumberjack and a truck driver and a fry order cook and a half a dozen other things before he started to turn out books. And uh, the, you no longer see that. You now see uh, that he is a graduate of uh, Harvard or this place or that place. And I don't think school makes a great deal of difference. We have lost the idea of the link between the generations. Mm -hmm. You don't, I don't think young people today learn from older people. They learn from their teachers. Yes. And this has had a devastating effect upon our society because it breaks the link between the generations, which makes them explicable to each other. And it also severs the roots of tradition. Now, the ball players that you were talking about, we can all relate to, at least I can relate yes. to immediately. I remember jokes like that that we played on one another at sea. Uh, one time, it's not a very good one to repeat, but there were two men on the, on the vessel, one of the vessels, that had false teeth. And some terrible fellow transferred the lower plates of each to their one, one glass to another. And those two men got into a fight. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. The practical joking uh, was very commonplace among the older ballplayers and was routine. It's frowned on increasingly. Oh, terribly. Because yes. it's a big business now. It's a big business? And you don't fool around. At least that's the standard, not that they... Oh, you mean the ball players? Yes. Oh, yes, they get a million dollars a minute or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that kind of thing is for the Bush Leaguer. I see. That's interesting. I don't know where they come from now, because I remember many years ago talking to a baseball scout, and that's when they had lots of yes. Sandlot and Bush League and so forth. And in fact, when I was a boy, we made up our own teams and we played yes. on the Brickyard. It was wonderful because the clay gave the ball a good bounce. 
we had our own umpire and our own team. We selected everybody ourselves. There was no little league. The idea of adults being around would have absolutely killed us. We wouldn't dream of it. But at any rate, this, this scout, I said, how do you pick him out? How do you pick out a player that you think should have a shot at the big leagues? Well, he said, if it's a big game, all the players look good because everybody revs up. He said, I'll follow a team for a couple of weeks or more. I'll try to find the fellow who revs up for every game, whether there's a big crowd or not, whether the game's important or not. And he said, that's the big league quality, the one who goes all out all the time. And that was very interesting. Yes, very interesting. He always does his best. Mm-hmm. Well, we're discussing books today, and I'd like to go back to one I mentioned uh, in our previous Easy Chair, A.J.P. Taylor, Politicians, Socialism, and Historians. This book was published in 1982 by Stein and Day. It's a very interesting uh, collection of essays, and mainly book reviews. A.J.P. Taylor was an historian uh, at Manchester and then Oxford whose uh, name became quite widely known after World War II when he wrote The Origins of the Second World War in which he said, uh, blaming Hitler for everything, is simply bad history. And uh, he gained a lot of disfavor for that book, but they couldn't uh, go too far on their hostility to him because A.J.P. Taylor was a good socialist, uh, leading member of the Labor Party, and much more. He also has been on the BBC and has written articles for various periodicals and has a lifetime credential, as it were, with the Labour Party. Well, he is a remarkable man because he calls attention to things that uh, you would think are emphases that only a Christian would make but he emphatically is not. Uh, He sees the doctrine of evolution as uh, heavily applied to the world of ideas. And he says it is irresistible to the children of the Darwinian age. So he said we have a great deal of warping of history, a misconstruction of the past, because we take Darwin's ideas and apply them to history and there's no relationship. Moreover, he uh, basically feels that uh, British socialism died in 1931. I don't know his rationale for that. Certainly it's been powerful since World War II. Well, Attlee came in long after that. Yes. But in the process of his comments, he says, and I quote, one of the greatest sentences I've read of late or this year, 
I quote, Once admit that human wickedness and natural hardship are inevitable, and socialism would have no sense, unquote. Well said. Remarkable, coming from a man who is a socialist. Does he know that he's talking about innate depravity? Yes, he knows he's talking about original sin and the fact that this world is a fallen world. So while he's very cynical about socialism, he doesn't drop it, but he puts his finger on the heart of the issue. When you recognize the depravity of man and the natural hardships that make up life, you cannot be a socialist. Well, no. To be protected from the tests of existence is a ridiculous dream. Then, ironically, his two favorite writers are George Bernard Shaw, whom he writes about with delight, and he speaks of Shaw's superlative quality as the greatest argue, arguer that has ever been born. But he says that uh, Shaw despised humanity, and at the end of his life, I'm quoting, Shaw confessed that he stood for nothing. Um, despite that, he was a great guy. <laughs> yes, he was very fond of him. And he says that... Uh, Though I owe more to Bernard Shaw than to any other single writer, I owe more to H.G. Wells' outline of history than to any other single book, unquote. And yet he has a devastating critique of that book and of Wells. He says of Wells' novels, Each book by Wells begins more or less realistically, usually in rather depressing surroundings, and then the principal character escapes by a miracle, unquote. Quoting again, none of Wells' characters get out, gets out of his difficulties by his own strength. The escape comes from outside. It happens to him. The need for a miracle, even in Wells' apparently realistic novels, was, of course, much greater in his scientific fantasies was indeed the essence of him of them unquote and he says of wells his imagination took him prisoner he always wanted a glowing future but the future of his fantasies often turned out to be most unpleasant wells the thinker and prophet was the same he could work miracles or at any rate wanted to work them. Wells did not really understand what he was talking about. If he wanted something, he assumed that there was a way in which it would happen. And he goes on to say he was passionately resolved on changing man, changing him, he thought, biologically. So he looked to science to work the great miracle to change man. He regarded man and society as animals subject to the laws of evolution, and he felt that all he had to do was to point out what was wrong, and then evolution would step in, he says, and put it right. So he uh, 
was a man who was constantly looking for naturalistic miracles to take place, he says. So he says, and I quote, If the world state was not coming of itself, what were we to do? Sometimes Wells implied that there was a superior moral force pulling things away in which he wanted them to go. And a phrase borrowed from Matthew Arnold, that's something not ourselves that makes for righteousness. But he soon confessed that God, in his view, is merely another name for his own wishes. Unquote. Then he comments, uh, Taylor does, all experience teaches that in a, if an elite run affairs, they do so in their own interests. And this is perhaps truer of businessmen than of any other so-called elite. Wells became more and more convinced that knowledge would transform the world if only there were enough of it. A little later, he uh, quotes uh, Wells as saying, the right thing to do, which he has in capital letters, will uh, be to have a vast ordered encyclopedia of facts and thought for our Bible. A gigantic organization, not only of research and record, of devoted teachers and interpreters, a world church, a world brain, a world will. And Taylor says, this is the great contemporary delusion at its wildest. So his critique of Wells is devastating. And it is, uh, he calls it the golden calf of knowledge. Taylor writes like a Christian prophet in his critique of socialism. He is cynical of socialism as he is of everything else. But it is a devastating study, uh, a landmark book. He is feeblest when he suggests anything positive, as he does when he says that... Uh, the answer to communism it is not anti-communism. It is a democratic socialism, equally convinced of its principles, but more tolerant in applying them. Well, I can't forget that H.G. Wells' last book was called A Mind at the End of Its Tether. Yes. He, he died in despair because... He came to understand at the end of his life that his belief in science was misplaced. Things were not turning out the way they were supposed to turn out or the way he expected. He was a wonderfully gifted man. He had genuine imagination. He wrote early in his career 30 stories of imagination, I believe, and it was true. Every one of them were unique and original. Yes. But like uh, Hemingway, all his stories ended in either no resolution or defeat. Mm -hmm. His War of the Worlds, the invaders, the alien invaders, succumbed to a disease. N the people of the Earth did not protect themselves at all. Mm -hmm. In the time machine, 
When he went forward toward the end of the world, he found human beings reduced to virtual vegetables living by machinery. And that sort of colored his whole life. There was no actual real optimism in Wells, and his personal life was very uh, messy. Yeah, very messy. I uh, read everything that I could... Uh Get, up my, get my hands on by Wells in my early to middle teens. I did not read uh, one book which I could not locate on uh, Mr. Polly, I believe. Oh, Was yes, Mr. Polly Goes to War. Yes. Well, and then I did get his autobiography, but I found it so sad and just browse through it and put it aside. Well, let's move, if we can, to a non-literary figure who is being covered by two unfinished so far biographies by Robert Carroll. The Path to Power mm -hmm. by Robert Carroll, Random House, 1981, Lyndon Johnson he's yes. writing about, and the book that came out this year by A. A. Knopf, A Different House, Years of Ascent, 1990. That's very unusual for a biographer of Robert Caro's formidable power not to keep the same publisher all the way through a multi-volume biography. Mm -hmm. So I consider it significant that Random House didn't print the second book. They printed, uh, that was turned over to Knopf. Now, I read The Path to Power, and I read the years, of, I haven't yet read all the years of Ascent, but I've read some of the excerpts. And in the second biography, he proves beyond any doubt that Lyndon Johnson stole an election in order to get into the United States Senate. Yes. And he also goes into great detail, which none of the reviewers have discussed, on how he became a multimillionaire while he was on the government payroll by using his influence to get a television monopoly in Texas. En <coughs> <coughs> route to these outstanding situations, he describes in the first book how Lyndon Johnson had an adulterous affair with one of his most powerful and wealthy backers. In the second book, and in the first book too, he talks about how he publicly insulted and abused his wife, treated her like an animal or a dog, used to shout orders at her across the room. His an almost unspeakable personality, crafty. He he played the former Speaker Rayburn of the House. He played son to House's lonesome father, I mean to uh, Rayburn. And in every respect, he is portraying a man that I guess the only only word we could use would be evil. An evil man in high power. A president of the United States, and none of the reviewers want to review these books. They are now abusing Robert Carroll yes. for having written them. Yes. 
And I think that every American should read these books because they throw a light on a transitional period in our political history where we moved from men of integrity, at least men that we thought had integrity, like Stevenson, the governor of Texas, was a tremendous person. And in order to overcome the effect of Lyndon Johnson's duplicity, his crookedness, his lack of character, the reviewers are dumping on the men that he defeated. Yes. One reviewer says, well, it may be true that Johnson stole the election. The fact is that Stevenson, the man he stole it from, was a reactionary and Johnson was a progressive person. Yes. It's all right to steal if you steal from our side. You're going to see a similar uh, study when all the Kennedys are dead of that clan. There are people who are collecting data. I'd like to go back for a moment to A.J.P. Taylor, Otto, because he makes this statement that uh, Oh, it's. Uh, I could spend a week on the book. There are so many telling things in it. But this, and I quote from page 183, the British left believed as confidently as Lenin had done in 1917 that socialism could be made in 24 hours. Socialism was preached in moral terms. Men had to be persuaded that it was right and just. The only problem was to win a majority, then socialism would follow of its own accord. The labor movement had only to squeeze up wages and welfare until capitalism exploded and the trick would be turned. Hence, while the left preached and argued, it did not lead. Economic conditions, not leadership, would produce the desired result. End of quote. Now, he has a great deal of that kind of commentary on the total lack of any realism on the part of the left that they expected paradise to come in with their victory. They were the good guys and therefore when they triumphed paradise would immediately be ushered in. A leftist millennium. Well, they're still there. Yes. Still they're, believe it. And they're still here. Mm -hmm. The collapse of all the leftist governments in Central Europe notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. Results mean nothing to these people. No. We see the escalation of all kinds of problems in this United States, <coughs> mainly from the left. Mm -hmm. It was the left that was going to settle all racial discord. Look at it. Mm -hmm. yes. It was the left that was going to make this a more equal society. Look at it. Yes. Now, some of the things that they're discovering, or at least they're proving, are interesting to me. We hear a great deal, for instance, about equality of opportunity, the need for equality of opportunity. But the fact of the matter is that it was soon realized, if not admitted, that if opportunities became equal, the distance between the clever and the dull would widen and not contract. Yes. 
because the clever then would move way ahead. Mm. So, of course, instead of having equality of opportunity, we have now Head Start, which not only involves kindergarten children, but moves all the way up the scale to adults. Some people have to be given a handicap, like a golf tournament. Some people have to be given an extra push, because it is unfair for the clever to be better than the dull. And I'll never forget what Durant said. Durant said, there is no system of government that has yet been devised that will enable the dull to outwit the clever. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, one of the books I read of late, which frankly was a disappointment, because I'd expected more from the author, Sir Arthur Bryant, who has written some exceptionally able historical studies. This is his book, Protestant Island, first published in 1967. It is, of course, on England. And he describes England from the time of Charles II to, well, perhaps World War One, although basically the Edwardian era is when he terminates his very close attention. It is weak because it does not consider the religious history of that time nor the impact of the Puritans and Evangelicals. However, there are some excellent things. Uh, he says in this era, the ruling principle of English society was the conception of a gentleman. Good breeding was not merely a mark of social distinction, but a rule for the treatment of others. It made few concessions to the ideal of equality. Men it was held were born to varying lots, and in 1815 one took those, these distinctions as one found them. But a gentleman was expected to treat his fellow creatures of all rank openly and frankly, even when it meant sacrificing his interests to do so. A gentleman did not tell a lie, for that was cowardice. He did not cheat, go back on his word, or flinch from the consequences of his actions. When Lord Sefton succeeded to his estates, he at once settled, and without question, a gambling debt for 40,000 pounds alleged to have been incurred by his father at Crockford's, unquote. And he said uh, that a man's reputation was his most valuable possession and the gentleman set the standard so that even the people on the lower levels of society looked to that standard for their own code. He said that at that time uh, there was a national character which was marked by pugnacity. The Englishman loved sports and he loved a good fight so that he relished uh, war. He relished things that uh, established his pugnacity. And he gives as an extreme example of this temper 
And I quote, A yeoman farmer of the same place left a sum of money to cover his grave with spikes pointing upward, swearing that he had never been trodden on when alive and would not be when dead. Unquote. I like that. And he said, uh, It uh, became such a thing that uh, where there was a law they didn't like or a rule they didn't like, they systematically broke it. A temper that apparently passed on to the United States, according to Europeans. But he says in one area, uh, in the villages of Whittlebury Forest, almost every householder was a poacher. That was the result of having strict rules against poaching. Yes. They all had to do it. Strict property laws. And he says the church was the center of communal life. And it was the chief social event of the week. And in those days, he says, the uh, villagers provided uh, the music until the old string and brass choirs were superseded by the newfangled organs and harmoniums. The village played as great a part in communal worship as the parson. Standing each Sunday in the West Gallery, these rustic instrumentalists with their copper key bugles, trombones, clarinets, trumpets, flutes, fiddles, and bass viol represented a folk tradition older than squire or clergy, unquote. Now, Sir Arthur Bryant doesn't go into it, but that is the background of... Uh, uh, General William Booth and the Salvation Army and their uh, bands in public places holding meetings. That was the English village tradition. Well, I'm very interested in what he said about the manners. I recall that in FDR's generation, my father's generation, that manners, they had excellent manners. Not only do they have very good manners uh, in conversation and dealings with other people, uh, they would listen, they were very courteous and so forth, they would respond to what was said, but they also had a very wide level of acquaintance. I recall that my father introduced me, amongst others, to a shoeshine man in Caracas, as well as the president of the country. He knew everybody up and down the ladder. And in those days, it was customary for a man to know everybody and to remember their names and to be courteous and ask about their wife and their kids and so forth. This was not a salesman's thing. Yes. It was simply a part of common courtesy. Yes. Now we can't do that anymore. In the first place, we're separated by ethnic descent, by race, by class, to an extent that the United States has never before been separated. If you try to strike up a conversation with somebody who is of a different group than your own or a different class than your own, you'll be met with suspicion and resentment and hostility. Manners have virtually disappeared. I only encounter really decent manners when I'm spending money in a store, not always there. <coughs> because in New York, you know, they count the change and throw it on the floor. 
count it to themselves and throw it on the counter. And the doctor's office, the dental office, and so forth, the little girl calls me Otto. We used to call our servants by the first name. And it's simply a change of style. It doesn't mean what it once meant. I mean, it's being friendly and they're trying to get along with you and so forth. But manners in the United States have become conspicuously lacking. Yes. And you lack the standard that he's referring to. Yes. You mentioned uh, ethnic conflict today. Up until the early 20s, a high percentage of the people of the United States were foreign-born and had been since the end of the War of Independence. We were a nation of immigrants. Now, one of the things that you hear about very often and read about is the uh, conflict in those years uh, between uh, various groups and some newer immigrants settling in their area. So a great deal is made of the fact how bad we were then. But what they do not say is how many people went out of their way to welcome the newcomers, whatever their background, to invite them to groups or to create organizations that would minister to their needs. But Christians were setting up schools. They were setting up uh, housekeeping classes for these foreign women, job training for the men, and a wide variety of things so that they had a sense of community. So while there were conflicts, there were also uh, close associations such as we have not seen in recent years. Well, don't forget, most of the immigrants are Christian. Yes. Now we have Hindus, Buddhists, Mohammedans, uh, African tribesmen. Uh, a few years ago in Washington, African tribesmen were dominating the taxicab business. They had scars on their cheeks and so forth. They did a good job, but... Uh, they, they were never sure whether they knew where you wanted to go, though. <laughs> but I, I wasn't sure. You know, I wouldn't want to get into a fight with any of them. But the English are discovering what we have already discovered, that when you bring in people from totally different cultures, the problem of getting along becomes exacerbated because, as you so often point out, our standards are based upon religious values. And when you have a different religion, then you have a different value system. And then, of course, there is the constant propaganda by the schools which have outlawed Christianity and which have practically made a profession out of denigrating American and European history. So that now we, I see hostile looks from people whom I've never known before, yeah. never seen before, total strangers who feel in some way that they are being oppressed mm -hmm. because of events that occurred in the past in some other part of the world. Yes. So I think this is true also of Sir Brian's book. His book is obviously not au courant because England is turning into a multiracial, multi-ethnic yes. country. The England that he's discussing no longer exists. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. 
Did you want to get on to another book now? Yes, I do. Uh, there is a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers by Paul Kennedy. Oh, yes. Random House, New York, 1987. It was a landmark book because it became a bestseller. And for the first time, the average American suddenly became aware in re reading The Rise and Fall of Great Powers that the United States is not only in a perilous position as a great power, but it is probably no longer a superpower. Now, Mr. P Dr. Kennedy is a professor because uh, he, he sort of soft pedals this at the end of the book. He doesn't want to say that. He wants to say that we are still a superpower, and he talks about some of our military hardware and technological inventions and so forth. But the fact of the matter, in my opinion, is that we are not any longer a superpower. We have lost military supremacy to the Soviet Union, and we have lost financial supremacy to Japan. Mm -hmm. We have lost technological supremacy to both Western Germany and to Japan. Yes. We are a great power, but we are not a superpower. Mm -hmm. We are not in charge of the world, although we thought we were, and we can no longer afford any foreign aid at all. We should start taking care of our own poor people yes. instead of supporting Egypt, Israel, and countries around the world. There is no reason in the world for the American people to work as hard as they do in order to support the peoples of another nation. Mm -hmm. And it's about time that we faced up to the fact that we cannot afford to continue an international dole. Other countries will have to stand or survive on their own feet. And I do think that there is much to be said for not being a superpower. For one thing, we should get rid of the responsibility. For another thing, we should take care of ourselves. And I think that to be a great power, but not necessarily the great power, would relieve us of responsibilities that we're not capable of supporting. Yes. We don't have the we don't have the leaders, we don't have the intellectual class. <laughs> <coughs> Diplomas do not supplant intelligence. Yes. And I would recommend everybody read The Rise and Fall of Great Powers because every pit that Spain fell into, that England fell into, that other countries fell into, we have faithfully followed. Mm -hmm. well, I'd like to deal with a different type of book now. One of the books which in the course of moving over the years I somehow lost was a small paperback atlas that I was given oh in the early twenties as a boy and that was not an unusual gift in those days in fact this was a special edition of maps and statements for uh, children Sure. I've always been interested in uh, atlases, and the one I have before me right now is a historical atlas of Armenia over the centuries from the earliest days to the present. A very intensely interesting to me, but all atlases are. 
Perhaps uh, this is an interest that has been especially strong in our family, and my brother is a professor of geography. But I think it's a very sad fact that, for example, a test of knowledge in the schools of Britain not too long ago found uh, resulted in the knowledge that most of the students there could not place England on a map. In England? Yes. They, uh, they couldn't locate their own country? No, they could not. They placed it uh, in some in continental areas like Latin America, Asia. They confused it with uh, Japan and other places. They didn't know. And you can talk to people who've traveled all over the world and they have a very vague idea of the geography of the places they visited. They're ignorant. Now, how can anyone uh, live in a world without understanding it or become a congressman or a senator with the abysmal knowledge they have of world affairs and world geography? But this is routine in our time. So I think this is why I introduced it. It would be a wonderful thing if uh, an atlas were purchased by parents for their children. Well, certainly should. Of course, we have the, uh, what is it, the yearbook of facts that is published annually. The almanac. The almanac of facts. No maps in the almanac. No, but you have all kinds of historical uh facts and data, a book like that plus an atlas, I think should be in every home that takes its responsibilities uh, seriously with regard to children. Well, an atlas also does something else. Uh, it shows you how countries and nations and groups and cultures wax and wane. Yes. I mean, Armenia was an independent country and so forth. And now, of course, it's a subjugated province and splintered and set apart. When I was a boy and you were a boy, the British Empire (coughs) was around the world. And now, of course, it's reduced to a small island with 60 million people. The United States is shrinking. A lot of people don't know that. We've given up territory to Mexico. We're in the process now of considering the surrender of certain crucial islands off the coast of Alaska to the Soviet Union. And I remember that Galenius, one of the Roman emperors, was the first to allow a piece of Egypt to get out of control of Rome because he said to his court, of what use is it? And they said, well, we get... uh, linen from there. Well, he said, you mean to say the empire really can't get along without linen? And they all laughed and said, well, of course they could. And Gibbon said it was a very significant thing. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that the Roman Empire gave up territory. Yes. We're giving up territory. I think the Atlas thing is an excellent suggestion. Howard Phillips is the only one who's really been consistently vocal about the surrender of uh, 
uh, portions of Alaska, the islands, right. the Soviet Union. Right. And they are strategically of great importance. Very great importance. And yet, all our press, the media, Dan Rather, is not concerned. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. Well, when you and I went to school, our geography books were basic. We studied geography almost every day. You had to draw a map of all these various countries and list their exports, their imports, their products, their their cultural characteristics, the whole thing. I remember once being sent out of the class for impertinence because I said that uh, the teacher said that sharks were poisonous and I dissented. I said they're in the in the uh, they're hanging up and they're sold. Shark steaks are sold in Latin America, out of the room. But it was a very important subject. Yes, very important. And today it is uh, not really taught in most schools. I wonder why not. Has anyone ever explained why not? It has given way to social studies together with history, and it is uh, really unimportant if you have as your goal a one-world order. Ah, yes. National boundaries are no good. Yes. We shouldn't have any, excepting some countries should have Mm -hmm. some. Others don't. Uh, Apparently, our White House feels that Lithuania is important to the Soviet Union. Yes. Well, the uh, publication of geography textbooks today is at the lowest ebb. But it was romantic. I remember oh, how I fascinated I was to all these different people. Mm-hmm. And you know, this nonsense that came in at the end of World War II about one world and how small the world had become, mm-hmm. only people who believe that are those who have never tried to travel around it. Well, as a part of geography, we had books in the classroom on these different countries. There were a couple of series. One was the Eskimo twins, or the uh, Spanish twins, or the Scottish twins, and so on, which dealt with each of these nations, and you learned a great deal, and they were delightful stories. Another was a series, When I Was a Boy, in and someone who had grown up, let us say, in Germany or in Russia or in Armenia because there was one for Armenia when I was a boy in Armenia and so on, wrote about their experiences as a boy. These were carefully done so that you learn something about the culture of a country. And and that was in every classroom, and you were expected to read a number of those when I was a boy. As you're talking, images come to mind. I remember being struck by the fact that St. Bernard dogs were used to carry milk, to pull milk carts in Belgium. Yes. (laughs) I remember the picture. Yes, I'd totally forgotten that. And I learned about the uh, Walloons and the... Uh, Fleming uh, people and so on. Very, very wonderful subject it was. And it it made you feel warm toward people in different parts of the world. Yes. Now we hear about the governments, Mm -hmm. not about the people. Yes. It's like the International Bank lends money to governments and not to people. 
Well, occasionally you'd have a teacher who would round up uh, somebody from, say, Sweden or Portugal who was in the neighborhood to come in and talk to the students. And that was a great treat. Sure. But uh, the ignorance of geography today is abysmal. Well, they've flattened out the imagination, too. Mm -hmm. Films do not do it. No. Uh, when you see a film, it's it's a sort of a self-fulfilling experience. That's the end of that. Yes. And when you got it from books and descriptions, mm -hmm. your imagination was free to visualize it. Yes. Well, our time is almost over. Uh, I particularly enjoyed this uh, auto rambling through books and ideas and... Uh, recalling a student days way back in the 20s. Uh, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.